I'm Joel Parker. I'm Brianna Draxler. I'm Ted Burnham. I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Shelley Schlender. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. It's Tuesday, March 15th. Today's show, we will hear from Kathleen Tierney about the uh, disaster uh, in Japan. And we'll also hear from Joshua Four about moonwalking with Einstein. Our memories are always there, shaping our perceptions, shaping how we move through the world, the decisions we end up making in it. You can't neglect that. They're the essence of who we are and, and, and how we think. Hello and welcome to another episode of How on Earth. And uh, we have quite the panel of people here today. We have many of our How on Earth uh, hosts, contributors, and headline writers here to help us uh, with the pledge drive this week, uh, just showing how much support we have and how many people we have behind gathering the news for you every Tuesday. Well, that's right, Joel. And it's a special thing, the How on Earth team, because everybody volunteers their efforts to make possible our show. And today, as a thanks to you listeners who call in and pledge, we have a great book that we'll be featuring called Moonwalking with Einstein about how to remember just about everything. We already have people calling and asking for that book. There's just a limited number of copies. So if you would like yours, call us here at 303-449-4885. We'll be going to that in just a bit. But first, we have a little bit of other science news that we want to cover for you about what's been happening in the world. We have an event that's coming up that we want you to know about, about Kepler and space. Um, actually, it is the Messenger space mission. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, there's many missions. <laughs> there are many missions, case. lots of spacecraft flying out there right now, but one of the spacecraft that's flying out there is the Messenger spacecraft, which has been on a long tour of the solar system on its way to Mercury. And you think, well, Mercury's close to the sun. Why shouldn't we just be able to just shoot a spacecraft straight off there? And the problem is, if you want to put it in orbit around the planet Mercury, you have to be able to slow it down a little bit. Usually it would just shoot right by. So it's been on this tour of the solar system for several years, and it will now be going into orbit around Mercury, finally. And they're going to be having an open house at LASP, uh, coming up on the 17th, I believe. I will find the actual uh, uh, time for that. But it's the evening of the 17th, and they will have public talks, and they will have a video feed uh, for what they call the orbit insertion of the spacecraft around Mercury. So that's at the Laboratory for Atmosphere Atmospheric and Space Physics at the uh, CU East Research Campus. And we want to also go very soon to Moonwalking with Einstein, this great interview that Joel Parker has done with Joshua Ford. This is a runaway bestseller. It is just taking the world by storm, and you can get your copy by calling us here at the station. But first, we want to give you a local perspective on the Japanese earthquakes from an international expert, Kathleen Tierney, who's the director of the CU Boulder Natural Hazards Center. And... She also has been in Japan. She knows the area where the earthquake has happened. She has colleagues there. We talked with her this morning as she was at a meeting on the West Coast about hazards and disaster. Here's some news from Catherine Tierney about what's been happening. Rescuers are just beginning to reach some of the more remote areas. 
and there's very little time in which to find survivors. Soon uh, there'll be a transition to um, body recovery effort. Then we have sheltering those people who have been displaced and then beginning to plan for how they will be rehoused. This is a very serious event that has been triggered by the earthquake and the tsunami and really constitutes, to the best of my knowledge, the worst nuclear emergency since Japan has been using nuclear power. It is already worse than Three Mile Island and approaching in magnitude the Chernobyl disaster, but we'll have to wait and see what happens on that front. How much of a wake-up call is Japan's plight right now for the rest of us? We really need to be thinking about that, even if nuclear power plants are built to very high specifications in terms of earthquake resistance, which they are, there can still be issues related to the electrical power lines and water lines that are going into those plants. We ought to be thinking about this, and and I'm sure that we will be. I can't imagine that Japan isn't going to launch a major, major study of its own nuclear power plants and their vulnerability, and we should be doing the same thing here. How does Japan's preparedness and response compare with the responses of other nations to recent disasters? Well, Japan is a very well-prepared country, but it has been hit by a catastrophic disaster. And no matter how well-prepared a country is, a household is, a business is for disaster, there are still going to be surprises and complex cascading problems in a catastrophe of this size. Now we hear that the um, stock market in Japan is taking a real nosedive, and that is an additional blow to an economy that was already having a lot of problems before the earthquake. It all goes together. It all goes together, unfortunately, and these are the kind of cascading effects that we see from a really large disaster. And the kinds of problems that we know about from Hurricane Katrina and that we can expect in the future earthquakes here in this country. And when CNN and the other networks go away, it will continue to be a long road for the people in Japan. That's Kathleen Tierney, director of the CU Boulder Natural Hazards Center, nationally recognized expert on disasters. She also has been to Japan, and she knows some of the people in those areas that have been hit so badly by what's happening right now. She says it's going to be a long road, and we have another pledge from a listener member who gave this feedback. When the reactors are finally cool in Japan, we are going to be told it can't happen here. We're going to be told not to worry about it. We're going to be told we have no choices. We must build more nuclear plants. The experts have decided we will need KGNU more than ever. And also, as we were listening to Kathleen's talk, we heard from one of our How on Earth members, Tom McKinnon, talking about how even if they contain this disaster with pouring in seawater, it's still going to cause burps of low-grade radiation for quite a time to come. Can you explain that a bit, Tom? Well, this uh, this core will continue to be hot, 
and um, even though it's not generating the kind of power uh, that it was when it uh, uh, when it was making electricity, and so they have to cool it somehow. Their, their emergency cooling systems, for some reason, have failed. I haven't followed it that closely, but but uh, the, this dumping in of seawater was just a last ditch effort. It's totally destroyed the reactors to be ever be used again. But it's continuing to generate heat. That heat generates steam. And the steam has to go someplace, and, and they're and is radioactive, and, and and they're venting it, and and there's really, it's of course better than the alternative, which is a meltdown, but it's it's not a good situation. An ongoing problem, an ongoing disaster of all kinds of magnitude there in Japan, and we will be covering this on our science show uh, in the weeks ahead. Joel Parker, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, we had uh, Tara Allgood uh, even before our show started. Uh, renewed her membership here and she picked as uh, her gift from us the book Moonwalking with Einstein. This was before we even started talking about the book. She knew that she wanted that book. She wanted to get in early and we do have some copies of this. We'll play some excerpts of a interview I had with the author later uh, but uh, she already asked for the book. So uh, that's what we're going to have available for the premium for today, and you'll get to hear some snippets. If you want to call in and pledge now, that is a premium you can get. It's Moonwalking with Einstein, and it's about memory. It's about remembering things. It's about memory competitions and how our brains work and how we remember or sometimes forget things. And since we do sometimes forget things, don't forget to call in and make your pledge. So now's the time when it's on the top of your brain you can call in at oh i forgot the phone oh number gosh, what is it number Shelley? i I'm, I'm forgetting too what is that number it, Does it starts with here? a three doesn't it three three oh three oh three so it, far it, so good okay what comes next there's a four there somewhere right Four. there might be two. Oh, you're right so who remembers uh i think it's a four four nine three three four four nine there, there might uh, be another four after that uh, it's got something to do with the, uh, the, the the FM frequency of the station. Uh, I know, 4885. Uh, okay, what was that number again now? 303-449-4885. Drill that into your memory, or if you don't have a good memory, just call now and make your pledge. All right, well, let's start listening to How to Remember Things with this interview with the author of Moonwalking with Einstein. So, Joshua, what does the title Moonwalking with Einstein refer to? Moonwalking with Einstein refers to a memory device that I used when I uh, competed in the United States Memory Championship in 2006. It was the way I learned how to memorize a deck of playing cards. And what is Einstein doing, and why is he moonwalking? Uh, well, I represented the Four of Spades. Moonwalking was the king of hearts. And Einstein was the three of diamonds in, in my imagination. I should explain, I suppose we should, we should go back and I should explain why in the world I would have been memorizing a deck of playing cards. Sure, go ahead. Uh, there is this strange contest held every spring in New York City called the United States Memory Championship. And I had gone there to cover it as a science journalist. I guess thinking it was going to be like the Super Bowl of savants or something, uh, that it would be these guys with photographic memories, freaks of nature, because I'd read that they were able to memorize entire poems and hundreds of random numbers. It right. turns out that that wasn't the case. These individuals had actually trained themselves to perform these rather incredible mental gymnastics, and I ended up spending the better part of the next year training my own memory to, to, to do this. 
and coming back and competing sort of as an exercise in participatory journalism the following year. Uh, and that was when I used that mnemonic of moonwalking with Einstein to uh, remember a deck of playing cards in that contest. So that's what got you interested in the subject of memorizing and memory and things like that in the first place. Yeah, you know, I went to this contest. I saw these individuals who claimed to have average memories reeling off strings of 300 random digits and all sorts of stuff that was just mind-blowing. And I realized I didn't know the first thing about how my memory worked. I couldn't comprehend what they were doing. And that sort of set me on this journey, not only to train my memory, but to investigate it and try and figure out a little bit about how it works and, and, and why it sometimes doesn't work. So you went through the process of training yourself. You, you said these aren't people who are necessarily magically, naturally gifted or have photographic memories and can just see a number or a book page that they saw, but they actually train, they exercise their brain muscles. And I was totally skeptical when these individuals told me that. They call themselves mental athletes, by the way, the people who compete in these contests. A few years back, some rather well-known psychologists in London brought a bunch of these memory champions into the lab and essentially wanted to suss out whether they were being honest when they said they had just average memories and put them in uh, an MRI and... Uh, found that actually structurally, anatomically, there was nothing unusual about their brains. General cognitive tests, they were pretty much average. But when they did fMRI scans, uh, while they were actually memorizing random numbers and all sorts of other stuff, they found that these mental athletes were engaging different regions of the brain uh, from control subjects when they were memorizing. Namely, they were activating regions of the brain associated with spatial memory which is fascinating. Why would, you know, why would they be doing that? Sure, spatial, right. It turns out they were using a set of techniques that were invented 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece, supposedly according to legend by the poet Simonides. And those techniques involve essentially transforming things that we are not very good at remembering, like random numbers, into vivid visual images that are then placed in a building, which is called a memory palace. Mm -hmm. And so that's what these mental athletes, memory champions were doing. They were walking around this imagined architecture in their brains while they were memorizing. The house of memory. Yeah, a house of memory, exactly. That was Joshua Four, who wrote the book Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. And we will hear a little more from Joshua later in the show. And as I mentioned, we have his book, which is a hot bestseller right now, uh, available as a premium if you call in at the $60 or higher level to pledge to make a new or renewed membership. Call in at 303-449-4885. And I believe we also have a match for this. Well, that's right, Joel. We have a match from Neil McBurnett and Holly Lewis and they're donating challenge money to help raise membership revenues on How on Earth. They're providing an extra $200, and we would like to see how quickly we can match that here on the show as people call to get the book Moonwalking with Einstein, or just call because you are wanting to be a mental athlete, and you appreciate science, and you appreciate a local focus. Call us for any reason you'd like to help support your local science show and your local community radio, KGNU. What is that number again? 303-449-4885. There you go. 
<laughs> See, that, that's called a team effort in remembering. If you can't remember, you just remember a few numbers. Um, and I believe we uh, have uh, some other pledges here. Yes, Erin from Denver just called in. She's made a $60 pledge to renew her membership to KGNU and the How on Earth show. Thank you very much, Erin, for that. Well, thank you again, and go ahead, Tom. Well, you know, if you, if you think about some of the shows we've had recently on How on Earth, everything from how local scientists are helping us discover new planets to, to local science fairs. I mean, uh, Joel, where else would somebody, what, what venue would somebody get, get news like that? I, I can't think of any. I mean, that's a huge advantage of a community-based radio station that not only do we have a lot of science going on in the Boulder, Denver, whole front range area, Colorado being one of the leading uh, states in aerospace and other sciences. But we also are able to get national and even international personalities to come in and interview uh, for the show. So this is really a homegrown effort. And just looking around the table, I see how many people here support this show. Yeah, and we have a staff of professional scientists, professional journalists, and volunteers. We're all doing this for free, but we still got to turn on the lights, and we got to run the transmitter. So we need support. It doesn't take much to keep the station running, but it takes something. So uh, right now you have a great opportunity. You can get a fantastic book, and you can get your money doubled. And, you know, as, as all of you here who are scientists as part of the team, we have a lot of lines lit up. We're very happy to see that. But I'll tell you what, as listeners are listening, if, if they keep those phone lines lit on, then we can keep on with the interview. What do you think? Is that a good statistical probability? I, I, I think the chances are very high with that. I think there's probably going to be a good correlation going there. Okay, we're going to try to go on to the next part of this interview so that you can hear more about how to remember things and how to moonwalk with Einstein. I like the line in your book uh, that said that once upon a time, there was nothing to do with thoughts except to remember them. There was no alphabet to transcribe them in, you, no books, no way to write down anything. So anything that you needed to remember, you had to consciously remember. Any idea, information you wanted to transmit, you had to remember it. It seems obvious, but in the context, it seemed very evocative. For much of the history of humans, that was the case. But now we've effectively outsourced our memories, starting with uh, writing and books and libraries and now with digital media. What do you think are the individual and cultural pros and cons of this evolution of memory? Well, the pros are, are, are pretty clear. I mean, I, I, it is much handier to be able to consult a book upon a shelf as opposed to having to have had that book essentially memorized or that text memorized if you wanted to consult it. And I find my GPS is much handier at remembering directions than my mind. <laughs> but I think that there's been something that we've lost in the process of, as you say, outsourcing our memories to these external technologies. And, and, I, and I do use the word technology in the, in the broadest possible sense to encapsulate everything from the alphabet to the Blackberry. Sure. One of the consequences is that we no longer trust our memories. We see every little thing that we forget as evidence that they're failing us altogether, that we're losing it. When, in fact, what I learned firsthand through the process of researching this book and doing this training that was really quite elaborate is that there's more potential in there than we give our minds credit for. Our memories are actually pretty good. We just don't really believe it. 
you give several studies in the books showing people that their memories are actually sometimes better than they think they are, that even though they think, oh, I can never remember those 30 or 1,000 different pictures, there are tests to show that actually your brain does remember them. It's just the trick of being able to recall them. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a famous study that was conducted in the 70s where they they actually showed people 10,000 pictures. They let them look at them for five seconds each. So took an entire week, basically, to perform the test. And then they went back and, and tested them, where they showed them one picture they'd seen before and one picture they hadn't. And their ability to recognize the one they'd seen before, even though it was 10,000 pictures that they'd just looked at once, was astounding. Uh, they remembered over 80%, uh, recognized over 80% of the photos. That's amazing. Uh, and that points to something that is, if you think about it, kind of obvious, which is that our memories are actually pretty good. We remember an awful lot. We just don't trust uh, we them. We happen to, to focus on the, the little things that we don't remember, but our memories are better than we give them credit for. Talking about outsourcing and depending on external technology for our memories, what impact do you think this end of remembering has on education or other cultural aspects? These days, memory is almost a bad word in education. The idea of rote learning is always spoken disparagingly. Right, and rightfully so. Uh, we've spent a century reforming our education system to make learning not only more fun, but to essentially produce individuals who are hopefully abstract thinkers and creative thinkers and people who can have new ideas. But in the process, we've de-emphasized the notion of raw knowledge. And if you look at what kids graduate from high school today not knowing really basic stuff like you know, when the U.S. Civil War was within 50 years or who we fought against in World War II. It's actually pretty important stuff for citizens to know uh, if we're going to have good citizens. And I would argue, you know, our views on education swing like a pendulum. I think we've probably de-emphasized memory and, and, and information a little bit too much. It wouldn't surprise me if in the years to come, the pendulum swings back a little bit in that direction. Well, how would you answer to someone who says, well, why do I need to just memorize facts? I can just look them up anytime I want. That's right. You can Google them. It's, it's right. a perfectly, perfectly good argument. What I would say in response is Google can't create a new thought. You have to have stuff knocking around in your skull if you're going to move through the world, finding it interesting, making new connections, seeing things in new ways. Our memories are not just some vault that we dip into and pull stuff out of when we need them. Our memories are always there shaping our perceptions, shaping how we move through the world, the decisions we end up making in it. You can't neglect that. They're the essence of who we are and, and, and how we think. That was author Joshua Four talking with us about his new book, Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. And if you're interested in getting a copy of that book, you can call in and pledge now. The books are very popular, and we have a limited number of copies to give away this morning. So please call in and pledge your support to KGNU at... Sorry, guys, what was that number again? At 303, I think. 449. Four, there's a 4885. 303-449-4885. And you know what? We do have some lines open, and here at a science show with people who know numbers, that really concerns us to have lines <laughs> open for this show. So please call us now at 303-449-4885. I was just going to say we have 
so many people supporting this show because it's a community based volunteer effort supported show and just to give you a flavor of the, who is behind the microphones here helping with this show i i started working on this show about eight years ago i'm an astrophysicist and i wanted to be able to communicate science and uh so i thought this would be a good way to do it and i know everyone has different stories Absolutely. Um, I'm Brianna, and I recently moved here to Boulder to get a graduate degree in environmental journalism to bridge that gap between science and um, and the public. And so I think KGN Radio is KGNU, I should say, is an excellent way to um, to communicate those messages and get the word out. 